And, uh, you know, we have noticed from time to time that the Proverbs in this section are relatively random, but there are some groupings even with that randomness. We see that more in some chapters than in others. We can see some groupings in this chapter. For example, these first nine verses, there are a preponderance of Proverbs that mention the Lord. We haven't had that many that did, but most of these do, and it's kind of cool because this is about halfway through the book, so kind of the center of the book focuses on the Lord and how God is in control of human affairs, and we need to really look to him and respect him. So I think that's a cool uh, kind of cluster of Proverbs for kind of like the center of the book. Would somebody read chapter 16, verses 1 to 9? The preparations of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirits. Commit your works to the Lord, and your thoughts will be established. The Lord has made all for himself, yes, even the wicked for the day of doom. Everyone proud in heart is abomination to the Lord. Though they join forces, none will go unpunished. In mercy and truth, atonement is provided for iniquity, and by the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Better is a little with righteousness than a vast revenue without justice. A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. So, he starts out showing the difference between man and the Lord in verse 1. What can man do? Yes, man can do the planning. Man can decide what he's going to do. What's God's part? The answer, the outcome, the result. Someone has said man proposes and God disposes. You know, man decides what he's going to do, but really, God is the one who decides how that's going to work out. Um, sometimes we get to thinking that we can choose that. Remember, like, James 4 talked about how people will say, well, today or tomorrow I'm going to go here and buy and sell and get gain and all that. And what did he say we ought to say instead of that? If the Lord wills. Because we sometimes act like we can decide everything, and whatever we choose and decide, that's what's going to happen. Well, uh, the Lord has something to say about that. Um, while man always has the freedom of, uh, to exercise his own will, make his own plans, God decides what the outcome is going to be. He still has the last word. Do you remember a character in the Bible that really shows that? character in the Bible that uh, you could really say, the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord? Balaam. Balaam. Remember what Balaam wanted to do? Curse Israel. Curse Israel. And uh, hey, talk, he wanted. Why did he want to do that? He was going to get money. Yeah, Balak, king of Moab, was going to pay him handsomely to do that, and he liked that idea. But he consulted the Lord various times, and the Lord told him that Israel was blessed. But when he insisted on going, the Lord said, "Well, that's okay. You can go." but you will only say the words I put in your mouth. 
And so four different times he opened his mouth trying to curse the Israelites, and every time God controlled his mouth and it came out a blessing. <laughs> it was really frustrating. That's kind of a literal sense of this. But the truth is there's so many variables we don't control that God's the one who ultimately decides the result of our planning. He's the one who's going to define what's going to actually happen. We're not so much in charge as we think we are. Have there ever been things that you planned out and they didn't go quite the way you planned? Yeah. <laughs> A lot of times. You know, and, and you really couldn't have even guessed it was going to turn out the way it did. You know, something random came along that just really messed things up and it didn't, it didn't happen the way you thought. God ultimately decides those things. Comments and thoughts on that. In verse 2, how does man look at what he does? Yeah. He thinks that what he's doing is right. Not usually the way it is. We always justify to ourselves what we do. We rationalize even sinful activities a lot of times and deceive ourselves into thinking we're fine. But who decides? whether what we do is right or not. God does. And, you know, you can't always trust yourself to decide whether something's right, whether or not what you did is right. You need to, that's one reason we need to really know the word, because God will show us right and wrong that may be different from what our estimation was. Uh, and he's the one who's going to be the ultimate judge. You know, and what does the Lord judge? Does he just judge our actions? Our yeah. He looks at the heart. He not only knows what we did, he knows why we did it. Because sometimes our reason for doing it is wrong, even if what we do comes out okay. And he knows that. So God is the perfect judge. He can, he can you know, analyze and assess everything exactly right. Comments and thoughts on that? Look at verse 3. So if the Lord is so much in charge, what should we do? Come <laughs> your works too. Yeah. We need to turn to the Lord and give ourselves to Him. That's what's really going to last is whatever is done in accordance with the Lord's will. Whatever we do in accordance with our own will will not work out so well. You know, it will turn out to be disastrous. You know, in the long run, it'll just not go well. So we really need to entrust ourselves to God. And, uh, you know, we just need to see Him as more in charge. We need to see how much He's involved in everything, and how when we just try to do things on our own, it's not a good idea. But so many people never see that. They never really look above them to realize who's really in charge. And then in four, the Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. You know, there's really no loose ends in God's universe. Because everything is matched to its proper 
you know, destiny, you could say. You know, God, God decides that what we do and what the result is match up in the long run. So what has God determined for the wicked? What are they going to face? The day of evil. You know, God has, has, you know, he's got the corresponding rewards and punishment to match everybody in what they do. So everybody in the long run is going to get exactly what's coming to them. You know, uh, even if it doesn't look that way in the short run. Comments and questions through verse 4. So in 5, what does he warn about? Being proud in your heart. Do you ever, what, what are some indications when somebody's proud in their heart? Their motives aren't pure. Their motives aren't pure? It comes out of their mouth. They say, what do they say? What would be, be some things that people who are proud in their heart would say that would show you they're proud? I statements. Yeah, a lot of I statements. Like what kind of I statements? I'm great. Yeah, all right. Uh, statements <laughs> about how how good I am, or statements like what? I'm better than you. Oh, I'm better than you. I did. Oh, what I've done, or how about all these statements about what I will do? I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. When we start making all these statements about what I did and what I'm going to do, what's the fallacy in that? We forget the Lord's in control. Yeah, exactly. What I did wasn't so much dependent on me. And what I am going to do, well, who's to say what you are going to do? The Lord will decide that. So we become proud in heart and we show it by this focus on ourselves and ignoring God. Anytime we don't take God into account, we're prideful and we will be punished. We're an abomination to God. You know, God hates men that, are, that try to be self-sufficient and think they can handle everything on their own. Comments through five? Um, early in the chapter, it says he hates the proud look. But for me, this just shows you, like, you don't necessarily have to show that you're prideful to be prideful. You can still be prideful inside without anybody knowing. Good point. That's exactly right. Where does pride begin? In your heart. Some people can try to look humble. Because, you know, you don't want to look like a jerk. But if we really think in self-sufficient ways... Like, we are in charge of everything. If that's what's in our heart, we're still prideful, no matter how much we, you know, make the appearance good. Yeah, Cass. Go back to verse 1. It, it talks about, you know, the, our plans and when God like changing it or, you know, fixing it. And it reminds me a lot of Second Samuel 11 when David's trying to cover his sin with Bathsheba and he, like, schemes and plans all this stuff, hiding it, and it ends up, you know, it goes the other way, um, and really God, you know, almost makes it that way, and it ends up, you know, God's plan is fulfilled. That's exactly right. 
man is so limited as to what they could really accomplish. You know, in the long run, you know, man doesn't decide things. God does. And then look at six. This is the two sides of forgiveness. What does God do to provide forgiveness? What's his side of this? Yes, his love and his faithfulness provides the forgiveness. What do we have to do to receive it? Leave evil. What do we call that decision to leave evil? Repentance. So God, by his grace and faithfulness and love, he provides the atonement that we have to repent in order to receive. That's a good statement right there of just the process of being forgiven by God. Those are the two elements of that. Thoughts about that? In verse 7, it says, When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord... He makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Um, you know, when, when, when we do what's right, that's going to even help in our relationship with other people. You ever thought about that? You know, what kind of people never get along with anybody? Prideful and... There'd be another good adjective to describe somebody who never seems to be getting along Arrogant. with them. Arrogant. Arrogant. Mean. Conceited. Mean. Conceited. I'm thinking of another quality. <laughs> There's something else. Contentious. Contentious. Selfish. That's what I was thinking of. You know, selfish people have a hard time getting along well with other people. Because they're always thinking about themselves and they're always trying to please themselves and get what they want. But this man who, who really pleases God, you know, I mean, it's harder to want to fight them. You know, there are people who, e e everybody they're around mistreats them. You know, nobody ever is fair to me. Everybody always mistreats me. Everybody's trying to cheat me. You know, everybody's just mean to me. Have you ever seen somebody like that? Who's up? What do you see in those guys? Insecurity. Insecurity. And and do you ever see why it's they feel like everybody's against them? Because they're always thinking about themselves. They're always thinking about themselves, and often they're all they're pretty obnoxious. <laughs> you know, people who always think about themselves generally are really hard to deal with. Have you noticed that? So, you know, if, if, you, if you really serve the Lord, it's a whole lot easier to get along with other people. Thoughts and comments? Cameron. In Romans chapter 12, verse, um, eight, verse 18, it says, If possible, so as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And how we do that is explained here in Proverbs, and his command to be at peace with all men. Yeah, because... If you're really seeking to be at peace with people, 
you're not going to fight and quarrel with them. You're not going to try to put them down. You're not. You're going to be willing to serve them and care about them and not just try to get your own way, you know, and things like that. It's going to be okay if they win. You're not going to be all mad because they won, you know. You're going to be happy for them. You're going to treat them well. You know, you're not going to be, you're not going to have everybody always against you. If you think everybody's always against me, nobody ever treats me right, look in the mirror. There might be a reason, you know, uh, because in general, now I realize there's persecution when you serve God. Some people don't like the light, but in terms of just relationships with people outside of them, just not liking the fact we're Christians, generally speaking, somebody who serves God is, is somebody that people are going to want to be around. Because they're not selfish and prideful and all those things. Other thoughts? Yeah, right. So our relationships with other people are really kind of a symptom of our relationship with God. Exactly right. If we're serving God, then we have good relationships. And if we're serving ourselves, and they're bad. That's exactly right. Yeah. If we're the kind of people that, man, you know, we just can't get along with anybody. You know... We can't get along with our parents. We can't get along with our siblings. We can't get along with our teachers. We can't get along with our, you know, fellow classmates. And, you know, we're just always problems and strife and, and mistreatment, you know. And we're always, you know, in a big, you know, argument with somebody. That's a problem. And it's probably us. That's something to think about. All right, look at verse uh, 8. He said this before in different ways. It's better to have a little with righteousness than great income with injustice. You know, it really, it's not so much how much you've got, but your righteousness. Think about this. You remember these two women in a story? Uh, maybe, maybe I should put it this way. Who were the two women that you would say were most important in the life of Elijah? The widow of Zarephath. And who was the other woman quite important in his life? Jezebel. Yes, I'm sure she was. Yes. Now, the widow of Zarephath, how much did she have? Her last meal. How long did she have her last meal? <laughs> yeah, for like three years, or we don't know exactly how much time he was spent at the brook and how much time he was there, I don't think, but for a long time. Now, Jezebel, she was the queen. She had everything she wanted, and, you know, if she didn't, she'd manipulate to get it. But which one would you rather be? The widow of Zarephath or Jezebel? You know, I mean, really, much better to be with the widow of Zarephath than to be with Jezebel. Um, and, and when what you have comes from injustice, you won't keep it very long. You know, if, if you cheated and swindled and lied your way into it, 
the Lord will see to you see to it that you get relieved of it fairly soon. And then in 9, we come back very much to what he said in verse 1. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. You know, can a man make decisions about what he intends to do? Yes. Can he make those decisions always come out the way he decided for them to? No. No. The Lord is ultimately the one who directs things. And if you think I control everything with my decisions, as long as I do the things that I've chosen to do, I'll, I'll determine the result, you'll be very disappointed over and over again. Because it doesn't just work the way you decide for it to. And we all really know that if we stop and think about it. There are so many things that we decide that don't work like we intended for them to. I was used, I've used this as an illustration a few times, but this seems like a good time to use this. That, that was important in my life. So, uh, several of you know this, but some of you wouldn't. When I, I was really cool, when I was in seventh grade, I went to the National Spelling Bee. You knew what I was going to say, didn't you? Well, so, but I went to the National Spelling Bee mostly kind of, it was kind of like luck. Because like... I don't know, you, you ever been to a spelling bee? You know how they work those? When you get down to the last two people, you know, if you misspell a word, that doesn't automatically give it to the other guy. Because he has to spell the word right, and then spell the next word right, and then he wins. But if he can't spell that word or the next word right, then he doesn't. And, well, when I got down to the finals in the school in seventh grade, I misspelled several words. But my opponent couldn't spell them right and get the next one right. If he could have, he'd have won. I would never have gone out of the school. But having gotten out of the school, I, I ended up winning that. Then I went to the Central Indiana Spelling Bee. Oh, there were a bunch of words I didn't know in that spelling bee. But other people got those words. <laughs> you know, you only have to spell a few words to win a spelling bee. You have to spell the ones you get. I happened to get the words I knew until I got down to two people. Boy, it was horrible. We misspelled several words. And I misspelled a word. I think it was the word covey. I bet a lot of you know how to spell the word covey, don't you? Like a covey of quail. You know what I'm talking about? I think I spelled it C-U-V-V-Y. I was not that great a speller. Yeah. I was in seventh grade, mind you. Yeah. But, and my opponent spelled it right. But he missed the next word. So then it came back to me to spell his word right. I couldn't do it either. <laughs> so we start over again. And finally, I ended up winning. <laughs> it was kind of a, a surprise. And I went to the National Spelling Bee. So the summer after seventh grade, because you can go through eighth grade, and the fall of my eighth grade year, oh, I spelled a lot of words. Mom helped me. I had a teacher that helped me. We went through the dictionary and found words, and I learned a bunch of words I didn't know. To this day, I can spell all kinds of words that I don't know what they mean. I just learned their spelling. I didn't bother to learn what they meant because there's no prize for that. And I was like, you know, I was going to do better in eighth grade because in seventh grade, I came in 45th. So I was going to, well, I was out of 77. Yeah. But I was going to do better. And they weren't even going to have a school spelling bee. Because after all, I mean, I'd be the winner. But then they decided they ought to. 
so my grandmother came from out of town and my mom came and all this and you know in this in the, I, I knew everywhere in that spelling buddy except for one I got I got the word acquaintance now spell the word acquaintance well you know the hard part of that word is acquaint oh I knew that I couldn't get the unce I couldn't decide whether it was A or E-N-C-E. I made the wrong decision. I lost in the school. I, was, I knew I was going to win the school. I was going to win Central Indiana. And I was just a question of how much more could I go in the nationals. I didn't get out of the school. I had the plan. I think the Lord wanted to humble me is what I think. Looking back, I think it was probably really a blessing that I didn't. It was really embarrassing going back out on the playground and all the kids saying, did you win, did you win? And it's like, no, I just lost. <laughs> and you know, like, when you miss a word in a spelling bee, like, there's no, you know, there's no do-over, <laughs> you know, there's nothing you can do. So we plan. And seventh grade was just kind of accident. I hadn't really thought about it. You know, I just ended up getting the words I knew. In eighth grade, I really worked on it, and I lost. It isn't up to my planning. It's up to what God chooses. And everything in life's like that. You know, you can have the greatest plan in the world. It may not work out the way you wanted it to. There's lots of people who planned all kinds of things. And then some freak stuff happens, and it doesn't happen the way they thought it would. Thoughts? Like, yesterday I planned on being here at 7. I didn't end up being here until like 30. Yeah. Because of traffic. Yeah. And you didn't have any control over that. Yeah. And sometimes it's going to be worse stuff than that. I mean, sometimes you plan all this, and then, you know, you get some sickness, some injury, you know, some setback, you know, that you just didn't, there's no way to plan for it. It shouldn't have worked that way. But it did. Other thoughts? Micah. Reading that passage, it could lead some people to be like, well, if whatever plans I make, it really doesn't matter because God's in control. Some people would uh, lead to a lifestyle of, I'll just live day by day and whatever happens, happens. And we see in other places in the Bible that that's not necessarily the wisest thing. And we, we just have to keep in mind that God's will is what we should long for. Good point. Should we plan? Mm -hmm. well, Proverbs says that in other places. Yes, it does. To prepare for the future, to plan. Think about Paul. I often think about Acts 19. Paul explained what his plan was. He was first going to Macedonia, and then to Jerusalem, and then to Rome. So he had it all planned out. He was taking the collection from those churches. He was accompanying it back to Jerusalem, and then his plan was to go visit the brethren in Rome. He even wrote Romans and told them about his plan. So it wasn't bad to plan. If you never plan, how do you ever do anything? Well, did he get to Macedonia? Yeah. Did he get to Jerusalem? Yeah. Did he get to Rome? Yeah. Not quite with the timing he had in mind on the Rome part, nor as, as a free man like he had imagined. He got there as a prisoner. So it didn't work the way he thought. It was a good plan. But there were some monkey wrenches in that plan that weren't exactly what he was anticipating. Plan it. 
but planet with flexibility. You know, planet realizing, well, if the Lord sees differently, okay. You know, we'll, we'll deal with whatever, because if the Lord causes this or that to happen, then we want the Lord's will to be done. Yes? I heard of someone putting uh, a GOK entry in their budget, and it's God only knows. <laughs> yeah. It's going to happen. Yeah. And even at that, it may not be adequate. Who knows? You know? And you wouldn't just take a fatalistic attitude toward what God says. Do you ever just say, oh well, God will do it. Like, does God make promises? Say, can you, can you turn to God and trust him to provide for your daily bread? Yeah. So why do you work? Just let God provide your daily bread. He provided you with that job. It's exactly right. His provision involves you. <laughs> and he intends for you to work. Think about this one. God told Paul, who was in a ship as a prisoner on the way to Rome, at one point in Acts 27, that nobody's life would be killed, that God would bless, spare his life and all the people on board the ship. And then a little later, Paul saw the sailors about to leave the ship in a, in a lifeboat, of course, they needed the sailors to steer the ship into the harbor. And Paul told the soldiers, if these guys get off the ship, we're in trouble. And they cut the lifeboat and let it go, forcing those sailors to stay on board the ship. Why didn't Paul just say, oh, God said we're going to all be saved. I don't have to worry about it. No, God saying something doesn't mean you shouldn't take protective measures. Doesn't mean you ought to just... Well, I'll just let go and let God, and I'll just, I'll just back out and just he can do whatever he wants to. No, it's not like that. God expects you to be active, expects you to plan, but ultimately he's the one who steers the ship. Does that make sense? Comments and questions? You, you talked a lot about um, like negative things happening, like I plan this and something bad happens and it doesn't go my way. Um, sometimes it goes better That's than true. you think it's going to go. And sometimes the bad thing actually turns out to be better. And maybe that's a good thing to think about, too. It's not always changed for the worse. Sometimes it's changed for the better. That's absolutely right. Like Paul's going to Rome as a prisoner. He eventually figured out that was better. Because the guards all got to hear the gospel. And other brethren took courage by his example, etc., and so it actually turned out to be a blessing. And yet, you're exactly right. Sometimes what God has in mind that we didn't plan for is a wonderful blessing that we never dreamed about. That's exactly right. It's much better that God's in charge. And we always remember that. We always recognize that his will be done, and it may not go the way I thought it was going to. Anything else on that? Well, this next section deals a lot with kings and their rule. 10 to 15. The lips of a king speak as an oracle, and his mouth should not betray himself. Honest scales and balances are from the Lord. All the weights in, in the bag are of his making. Kings detest wrongdoing, for a throne is established through righteousness. Kings take pleasure in honest lips. They value a man who speaks the truth. A king's wrath is a messenger of death, but a wise man will appease it. 
When a king's face brightens, it means life. His favor is like a rain cloud in spring. Okay. I think all these proverbs had some bearing on the kingship. Almost all of them have the word king in it. And uh, to some extent, this is the king as he ought to be. Not every king quite meets this ideal, you understand? But this is the way it should work. So in verse 10, how should the king act? Should not err in judgment. Yeah, he should do what's right. He should act the way God wants him to. Really, God intends for governmental rulers to like be his representatives to execute justice and righteousness. So the goal for the king is to do what God would do. To lead and rule in a way that fits God's standards. So verse 11, what does that mean? That should be done in business. Should be done fairly. Should be done fair and just and righteous. That's exactly right. Because if you have like scales that you're weighing out how much product you're selling, they need to be fairly weighted so you don't shortchange somebody. That'd be a way of getting extra money in your pocket. You know, you don't have to sell as much and you get more to sell. So God and, and his rulers want justice. And so in 12 and 13, what does a king want out of his subjects? Wrong man. Yeah, they don't want wrongdoing, they want righteousness. Yeah, that's what a king would want. Because righteousness and justice are like the foundation of a good, strong, stable government. And so good kings want honest advisors. They, they, they like righteousness. Uh, they want the, you know, their, the, the, the Lord's will would be done. That's the ideal government. Now, you know, we don't have a king in this country. We have elected officials. So what kind of elected officials should we want? <coughs> Righteous, fair, just, honest leaders. What are we usually looking for when we come to somebody we vote to be in office? What would, what would people in general look for? Someone who speaks well. Someone who speaks well. We do like a good media man. Qualifications like, like they, what their issues are, what, what they know what's going on. All right, we want them to be well educated in various political policy matters and so forth. And what else do we often look for in somebody we'll vote for? Strong leader. Strong leader. If they look the part. If they look the part, sometimes looks make a difference. The economy. Are they going to fix the economy? Yes. <laughs> Do they have the policies that we agree with? You know, I don't know what you think. Um, you know, these days, you know, jobs are a big deal and a balanced budget. So do, does, does he say the things I think he ought to say about that? Now, do you notice what we haven't said so far? As we talked about what people are mostly looking for in their governmental officials they vote for. Their religious beliefs. Their religious beliefs. And even, maybe not just religious beliefs, but their integrity, their character, their honesty, 
their justice. Why shouldn't that be a really big factor in who we select? I say that ought to trump, you know, whether or not they think we ought to have more taxes or less, or whether or not they think, you know, we ought to have more environmental controls or less, or, you know, other things like that. You know, bottom line, what we really need are honest men of good character and integrity. And I don't think we think about that much anymore. Maybe because we find so few that have that. But it's like, what if you knew this guy was a real scumbag and when it came to, to his life and, and his honesty, but you thought he'd really vote the way you wanted him to? I think sometimes Christians would even say, well, that's who I'm going to support. Never mind his personal life. Well, the problem is your personal life tells about your character. It tells about what kind of a person you are. And to, to have somebody in office who's a bad person, he's not going to be a good person to be the king. Right? If they're willing to lie in the personal life, they'd be willing to lie to us. Well, that's exactly right. Yeah. If you can't trust him, you can't trust him. You know, but, but so often we bought into this lie that well, what you do in your personal life has nothing to do with what you do in your public life. You don't have to have two lives. <laughs> you know, you are one person. And so that's exactly right. Somebody who's dishonest and unfair in their dealings with anybody, that's the way they're going to be in public too. That makes a lot bigger difference than, you know, whether or not they think we ought to do this or that specific thing on some specific issue. Good government loves righteousness. Comments and thoughts on all that. In 14 and 15, you look at that a little bit, what's he saying that a wise person will do? Yes, a wise person knows how to please the king. He knows what to say to the king. Because the king will determine whether or not he dies or lives. A king has a whole lot of influence over the welfare of his subjects. So a wise person is wise about how he responds to the king. You know, you take um, people like uh, Joseph. He spoke wisely before the king. Think about Abigail with David, kind of in his pre-king days. How wise she was in what she said. If the king has authority, you better think about how you treat him. You know, you better show respect toward him. And not just the king, but how about the policeman? How about the boss? You know, etc. Respect and thoughtfulness about how you respond makes a lot of sense. You know, you don't treat the guy with the authority like he's just some pal you can just kind of treat any old way. He's got authority over you. You better try to please him. All right, comments and questions through 15. Yeah. Um, that reminds me of 1 Peter 2, 18 through 20. 
Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this I'm savor, if for the sake of consciousness toward God, uh, conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But when you do do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this I'm savor with God. I mean, it doesn't matter if they're fair or unfair. It's just they're your, they're your master. You need to do what you need to do to please them. And oftentimes we think, oh, it's conditional whether or not um, they're they're what they should be. We need to be what we should be, regardless of everyone else around us. Yeah, it's very unwise to not be, um, you know, respectful, even of a jerk who's in charge of you. If your boss is really ornery, well, treat him well. You know, you say, well, he doesn't deserve it. Well, that's true. Maybe true, but he's in charge of your job. <laughs> I mean, the wisest thing is to, to be respectful and to treat him well. Um, it just, you know, the king decides whether you die or whether you're, his favor is like uh, life in the spring rain. So you'd better do what, what you ought to do toward him, whether he deserves it or not. I mean, it's just foolish to beat our head against the wall. You know, you fight with your boss because you don't like him, you don't think he treats you right. Well, guess how he's going to treat you? Probably worse. You're respectful of the office of the position because that's God's plan. And we, we just talk about in our Bible class with the fourth, fifth, and sixth graders that everybody needs to respect somebody or has somebody that they need to respect. You never get past that no matter what your age. Yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, when Paul said to, you know, obey the rulers and show respect for them, it was Nero who was the Caesar. He was not exactly an well, honorable guy, but we still should respect those that God has put in authority. You know, that's, that's a part of God's intention is that there be authority. God will bring them down when he chooses. But our job is to be obedient and respectful. I mean, just like we read with the unreasonable, harsh master. Will God judge an unreasonable, harsh master? Absolutely. But if you're their slave, you obey them regardless. We think, well, if, they don't, if they're not treating me right, then I don't have to do what they say. It's not true. Good comments. Other thoughts? I'm just, you know, thinking about how important it is for a king to be righteous because if you can look back in the first and second kings, if like someone like Jeroboam or someone, if they would set up idols, then that would get the people tempted to go worship the idols. So like a, a king's influence got a huge, a huge influence on the citizens. Yeah, it does. And you know, there's a lot of times in the Old Testament where God was really hard on the leaders because of how they misled the people. Often he used the word shepherds talk about the leaders, whether it was the religious or the political leaders. And the shepherds were leading the people astray. So it really does make a difference. A good leader can, can help a lot. The Bible one's about being a teacher because you have so much more responsibility with teaching someone about God, about what's right. But in a way, we're all teachers. Someone's looking up to us. Someone's learning from us. Even if they're older, they can learn from us. And we still need to be that right example. Excellent. That's exactly right. Amen. All right.
Look at this next section. Somebody want to read 16 to 19? How much better it is to get wisdom than gold, and to get understanding is to be chosen above silver. The highway of the upright is to depart from evil. He who watches his way preserves his life. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before stumbling. It is better to be humble in spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Okay. I like verse 16, especially thinking about who said it. Who wrote verse 16? Solomon. Now Solomon here is comparing wisdom and gold. Well, guess what? How much gold and silver did Solomon have? Yeah, a whole bunch, yes. And how much wisdom did he have? Yeah, he was pretty much the wisest and the richest person in the world. So who ought to know which was better? <laughs> and which does he say is better? Wisdom, yeah. You know, wisdom can do things riches can never do. And actually, wisdom is a good way of getting to the riches. <laughs> you know, so wisdom outweighs riches. And it does. Cameron. And even before he had a lot of both things, he still knew which one was better, and we should know too, because he chose to have wisdom instead of choosing to have all his gold. Yes. You might think about it this way. If you are... Well, do you ever get in these situations where you know, you have just so much to do in school so that you can get a good degree and get ahead, that you don't have any time for the Lord. Is that a wise move? You know, you need the wisdom more than you need the riches. Now, the wisdom will teach you to work hard in life, so the wisdom may turn around and make you a better student, or a better worker, or whatever, but you never sacrifice the wisdom in order to try to get higher on the financial totem pole. Alright, comments. Look at verse 17. What should a man do in 17? Apart from evil. He should leave evil, and what else should he do? By doing what? Watching his, way. watching his way. What does it mean he needs to watch his way? Guard it. Yeah, not just guard it. If you're watching your way, what are you doing? Have foresight. Yeah, you're kind of looking where you're going. You know, a wise man doesn't just walk aimlessly. But he makes conscious choices about the right way to walk, the right things to do. A guy who just randomly, haphazardly rumbles through life is going to do a bunch of dumb things. It's much better to depart from evil and watch your way. Watch where you're going. Stay on the right path. You know, how many times do we just kind of, we don't care, we're just going to do whatever we feel like. Was doing what we feel like a good way to do right? No. Watch your way. 
Think about where you're going and the steps you're taking, the decisions you're making, and you'll end up in your a better destiny. Comments and thoughts about that? Okay. I think it's interesting in how it, at the start of the verse it says the highway of the upright, and then at the end it says the one who watches his way. Both times it's way, and I think it's interesting that if we're watching our way, we'll see that the highway is to um, depart from evil, and that is the way that we should be living, and that's the way that we will preserve our life is fighting. So life is like a what? Yeah, life, life is like a road. <laughs> now what do roads do? They go places. You know, if you follow them, they'll lead you somewhere. And of course, what's the main thing about a road? Where it takes you, right? The main thing about the road is not how shaded it is and how nice the stripes on it are and things like that. The important thing about a road is where it goes. So your life's like that, make sure it's going in the right direction. Then look at 18. He warns about what? Pride. Yeah. Pride goes before destruction. Um, you know, when you, when you are prideful, you are probably going to fall. You know, it's kind of like, you know, you know why you tend to fall when you're prideful? Because you're, you're looking up instead of looking down and you don't see what you're going to stumble over. You know, you're too busy exalting yourself to notice all the pitfalls. So don't be prideful. It's a sure recipe for disaster. And then in verse 19, it's better to be humble in spirit with the lowly than to divide and spoil with the proud. Uh, you don't want to be with the prideful people. You want to be with simple, humble people. They will help you a whole lot more. Comments and questions about that? All right, how about 20 to 24? He who gives attention to the word will find good, and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. The wise in heart will be called understanding, and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. Understanding is a fountain of life to one who has it, but the discipline of fools is folly. The heart of the wise instructs his mouth and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bone. Did you notice the theme in that section? The tongue. The tongue, and particularly, what would you say about the tongue in this section? It was mostly positive. Yes. These are the positive things about the tongue. We'll see the other side in the next section. But can, it, can what you say do good? Yeah, absolutely. There can be great positive benefits from what you say. But what do you have to do in verse 20? Eat the you, have to, you have to watch what you say. <laughs> Give attention to the word. You have to... Think before you speak. You have to listen to the good words, trust in God, and speak the things that are right. That'll be a real blessing if you'll give attention to the word. 
And verse 21, you need to have wisdom in your heart. And it will cause you to speak things that are more influential. The more wise you are, the more what you say will help people. Think about Jesus. Jesus spoke wise words. And, and people were impressed because what he said was really helpful and convicted. Do you remember in John 7, in verse 46, the, the Jewish leaders had sent officers to find the right time, maybe when there weren't many people, and arrest Jesus. They came back without Jesus. In John 7, 46, what did they say about Jesus? No one ever spoke this way. Yeah! Nobody's ever spoken like he did. <laughs> Listening to Jesus was convicting to them. They were supposed to arrest him. They came back impressed so much with what he had said. In Luke chapter 4 and verse 22 in Nazareth, they were all speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. They were surprised and kind of stunned that this hometown boy could speak so well. Luke 19.48, they could not find anything that they might do for all the people were hanging on every word he said. Jesus' words were so wise that they had a lot of impact on the people who talk, he talked to. If we have wisdom in our heart, what we say will have, will have a lot of influence. You know anybody that you really find what they say beneficial to you? Think about somebody that, that the things they say, you really, you find it really helps you when you listen to them. Now think about that person. What, do you see them as being a person filled with wisdom? Yeah. That's what makes their words so helpful. They have wisdom in their heart. They know God, and they tend to speak things that are very fitting with God's word and God's revelation. We can really do a lot of good with our mouth if we really got God's wisdom in our heart. Comments and thoughts on 2021. In 22, this goes one step more. What does understanding make us into? Yeah. Now, if we're a fountain of life, what does that say about us? We're someone that people can rely on. Yes. We provide life, refreshment, energy to other people. A fountain of life sustains life and it refreshes. And so, if we have understanding, people can come to us and, and, and be uplifted and gain energy and vigor. But the discipline of fools is folly. 
You know, if you're a fool, your foolishness will spank you. It'll hurt you. So, so much emphasis on how wisdom leads you to doing and saying things that help. That's, that's an important thing to think about. Do you want to be the kind of person that other people can listen to and they say, man, you know, every time I talk to that person, they just tell me things that really help me. I really get close to the Lord because I'm listening to this person. That's what you want. You want to be the kind of guy that everybody feels like they can talk to and it really helps them. Pursue godly wisdom. Thoughts? In 23, the heart of the wise instructs his mouth and adds persuasiveness to his lips. So wisdom will improve your speech. And verse 24, what will good words do? Make you healthy. They'll make you healthy. That's exactly right. They'll help your soul and your bones. They'll be sweet and they'll build you up. Proverbs has said so much about the negative power of speech that it's really encouraging to have a section like this that says the ideal is not just don't ever speak, like as if words were inherently evil. After all, God communicated to us with words. and think words are always bad. And, and, and really, good words are a big help. You can do a lot of good with what you say, but you have to have wisdom in your heart. You have to be filled up with God's word and God's way of looking at things. And then it will make what you say have, have great impact. I can think of people in my life that because of what they've said have made a difference. Some people because of what they've said in sermons and Bible classes. Some people because of what they've said to me personally, but they made a difference. Comments? Well, think about the other side of words. This isn't all about that, but you'll see several verses that are. 25 to 30. There's a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. A worker's appetite works for him, uh, for his hunger urges him on. A worthless man digs up evil, while his words are like scorching fire. A perverse man spreads strife, and a slanderer separates intimate friends. A man of violence entices his neighbor, and leads him in a way that is not good. He who winks his eyes does so to devise perverse plans. He who compresses his lips brings evil to pass. Okay, in 25, he said this already, that's 14.12. There's a way that seems right, but it ends in death. Some roads look good at the beginning, but the end is not where you want him to be. After all, what are you mostly looking for when it comes to a road? The beginning or the end? Well, that's what we mostly see, but it's the end that matters. <laughs> you know, if all you're thinking about with the road is, wow, wow, this road really looks good right here, the part I can see, that's not the part that matters. It's destiny is what you have to think about. So always use your head and wisdom and think about not just how does it look but where does it go that's the key in life and then 26 I really like this what makes you work hard hunger, hunger. you agree 
Um, you know, we're all different ages in here. Um, maybe uh, there wouldn't be many, but how many of you in here uh, own a car? Almost nobody, uh, just a few. Uh, how many of you have very serious interest in getting a car fairly soon? A few. All right, you guys who really want to get a car, uh, how do you look at money? Do you, do, you, um, do you respect it more? Do you try to hang on to it more? Yeah. Some of you guys who are younger and have never really thought about a car, how do you look at money? Yeah. Do you spend it more easily? And how do you look at work? You know, if you really, if you really need something, you want a job, you want more hours. If you are well taken care of, you don't have anything you want, anything you need, you want as few hours as you can get. The less hours you spend working, the more happy you are. It all depends on how hungry you are. The more hungry you are, the harder you work. The more you want to work. Isn't that true? So if you were raising kids, what should you do? Starve them. Starve them. <laughs> well, think about this. And maybe some of you can think about your parents in connection with this. It might help you have a better attitude toward them. If you wanted to raise a good kid, and one that's really got good character. As a parent, do you just give them everything they want all the time? Wouldn't that be nice? Would you like to have parents who always gave you everything you wanted? Wouldn't that be cool? Why is that not good? Yeah, that's exactly right. And what would it do to your character? Turn into a brat. Yeah, you would. You know, you never work hard because why do you need to? Mom and Dad will do this. You know, Mom and Dad, would you, would you like, would it be nice to have a parent who always did everything for you? Say a parent who always did your homework for you. <laughs> a parent who always cleaned your room for you. You know, a parent who always did everything for you. Wouldn't that be nice? No. You'd be terrible. If your parents sometimes don't do for you things that you think they ought to, Thank God for that. You got friends whose parents buy cars for them? Do your parents buy cars for you? I got more no's on the second one and more yeses on the first one. Wouldn't it be nice to have a parent who always bought cars for their kids? Maybe not. You're probably better in character if your parents make you have to work and earn something than if they just give a bunch of stuff to you. You know, any particular decision that may depend on circumstances. But it really makes a difference if I'm hungry. It makes me more diligent. If I'm full all the time, I get lazy. So raising your children to where they are hungry sometimes will help them develop a stronger work ethic. Does that make sense? So if your parents make you work, if they don't give you stuff other people's parents give you, it may not be because they're meaner than everybody else's parents. 
It may be because they're wiser than everybody else's parents. Comments or questions about that? Yeah, Ethan. Something I've noticed in the past couple of years is uh, after we moved from California, my parents, we don't have the money to pay for you to go back to camp. So the past couple of years, I got a job and I started working for it. And I noticed more now being able to go back each summer, I relish it more. It's, it's more savory for me to when I pay for it myself and work hard for it than when my parents used to pay for me to do it. Isn't that true? So, I don't know, this may not be as relevant, but, but for all of you, but some of you would think about this. Do you have, I bet some of you got friends that their parents gave them a car versus friends that they had to work hard to buy their car. Do they treat their cars differently? Yeah, I see several yeses. If something's given to you, you usually don't appreciate it very much. Sometimes you're not even grateful for it. If you had to work hard to earn it, you know it took a lot of sweat to get it. And you're a lot more protective of it. You, it's hard to appreciate something that's a gift. Yeah. So you really do appreciate things more when you had to work for them. Remember that when you're raising your own kids. And appreciate your parents when they don't make life too easy on you. Other thoughts? Yeah, Logan. Um. I was thinking in the in verse twenty six how it's talking about when the app, the hunger makes you work harder. We need to hunger for the Lord, and then we'll work harder. For the Lord. That's an excellent point. That's exactly right. And sometimes our problem is we don't have a good appetite for God, and that's why we don't seek Him more. It's a great application because that's true in that context as well. Other thoughts. That reminds me of. <clears throat> I, I don't remember which chapter, but in uh, uh, Christ was talking to his disciples, and, he, and I think he was um, Math, Matthew. What's that eleven? Um, about um, the uh, who is forgiven more, uh, loves more. Uh, That's Luke seven. Luke seven. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, with that woman that anointed his feet and all. Yeah, and um, and the, and he says that uh, uh, one's forgiven uh, five hundred and the other fifty, and which one is forgiven more? And okay, so. and that's Matthew eighteen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Matthew eighteen, Luke <laughs> seven. Two guys. Yeah, yeah. Luke seven is really more the idea you've got. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Because the, whoever got the greater forgiveness loves more. Yeah. Good point. I thought about that passage. Other thoughts? Okay, come back to 27. We're back to bad words. You know, a worthless man digs up evil while his words are like scorching fire. So what does a worthless man say? Yeah, bad stuff about people. And what does that do when he always says bad stuff about people? Spread strife. Yeah, spread strife. It's destructive. You know, it just burns people up. You've got to watch what you say. A scoundrel just plots ways to slander people. 
Verse 28, a perverse man spreads strife. A slanderer separates even, uh, uh, intimate friends. You know, some people just like to keep things stirred up. You know, they like to, you know, cause people to doubt and distrust each other, to sabotage relationships by just always saying things that they shouldn't say. You know, what if you've got a friend who tells you something they're annoyed with, with another friend? And you're friends of both of them. So you go to the other friend and say, do you know what so-and-so just told me about you? You know people who do that kind of stuff? They're always out to spread bad news. Don't do that. Use your head. You know, you don't want to cause strife and to keep things stirred up. Um, there is an expression in Portuguese. Um, and I'm thinking actually of one sister in the congregation, in one of the congregations, I've heard several people say this about her. But, but the expression is, bota fogo, puts fire. And it means she, just, she always keeps people burning up with the things she says, trying to keep people riled up and upset. And uh, it's kind of just an expression for the person who always stirs people up. They bought the fogo, they, they put fire. And that's kind of what he's saying in 27 and 28. Comments and thoughts on those verses? In 29, a man of violence entices his neighbor and leads him in a way that's not good. You know, a violent man is destructive and uh, he, you know, will take people in the wrong direction. Violence is not a good thing. You know, the kind of guy who's always wanting to fight. You know, I always want to settle this thing. You don't want to be around that guy. Or a deceptive person. Verse 30. He who winks his eyes does so to devise perverse things. He who compresses his lips brings evil to pass. Here's a person who, who's deceptive in his communication. He winks his eye means he's kind of trying to use some kind of sign to mislead people. Uh, total honesty and transparency is our word. So here are some bad ways of speaking. Comments and thoughts about this? All right, 31 to 33. Gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules the spirit than he who takes the city. The law is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Right. Great principles. In 31, what does he say about the gray head? Why? Alright. Experience generally leads to wisdom. So there's that blessing with the gray head. What else would you say about the gray haired person? They have more respect for them. Why? Usually gray hair getting older. Yes. Except for me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, what, what usually happens to really wicked people? They die young. I mean, one thing you can say about the gray-headed guy is he's managed to keep it together well enough to live to this point. I mean, that says something for him. Uh, because wicked people are often cut off before their time. It's not automatic. 
And wisdom doesn't come automatically with age. But a gray-haired man in the way of righteousness. Respect. You know, typically, righteous older people have some wisdom because of their experiences that we can benefit by. You know, it's getting harder for me, but I continue to look for older people that can be wise and guide me. You know, and it's really helpful. You know, I'm afraid that one of these days I'm not going to find them anymore. <laughs> but so far I've done okay. Uh, but it makes a difference. You know, talking to somebody a generation older is really cool. Especially if they're righteous, godly people. Because they have some insights that maybe you haven't really seen yet. <clears throat> so, what a blessing to have a righteous, gray-haired man. Comments and questions on that? Brandon? And on the contrary, some people just grow old. They don't <laughs> learn from their experience. Too. Yeah, that's, that's true. And those kind of people are really... They shouldn't, shouldn't be like that. It's kind of annoying. <laughs> Alright, other thoughts on that? In 32, I love this. What is the greatest uh, accomplishment of all? Control your emotions. Controlling your emotions. It's harder to control your emotions than to capture a city. It takes more strength. Mm -hmm. Conquering yourself is the greatest battle that you could ever win. There's plenty of people who are powerful enough to capture a city, but they cannot control their own selves. They can't discipline themselves. And it's so much better to exercise self-control than to control other people. If you don't have self-control, you're going to do really foolish things that are going to hurt you. You have to be able to discipline your own life, to make yourself do what you choose. And not just losing your temper, getting all mad. Just that, that's such a, you know, if you want to be strong, be strong with yourself. Comments and thoughts on that? When you look at like someone like Alexander the Great after he conquered all the cities, supposedly he cried afterward because he had no more to conquer. It just shows you the emptiness of trying to go take over a city. Good point. Yeah. If you conquer the city, what do you get? The city, yeah. <laughs> possessing yourself is more valuable than possessing the city. And then look at the last one. I, I've used this one a lot. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. What does he mean when he talks about the lot? Probably not Abraham's nephew. Probably not Abraham's nephew. <laughs> He's talking about like when the apostles would cast lots to, like when in the New Testament when they would do that to make a decision. Yeah, when did they do that? Just once. To, they did that to um, choose Matthias as the, the replacement. Yes. So casting lots was kind of like we talk about drawing straws. Do you know what it means to draw straws? Like some random chance thing to decide something. And what he's saying is, God determines the outcome of the chance event. 
And so, you know, man may throw the lot, but God decides how it's going to fall. Now, there are a lot of times in the Old Testament when lots were cast. Can you think of some of them? Jonah. Yeah, they cast lots to decide who was the guilty party. Who was the culprit? And the lot fell on Jonah because God chose who the lot would fall on. Who? What else was? What else do you remember? Lots in the Old Testament. Solomon, whenever he did all that, uh, no, who had violated Saul's order and it fell on Jonathan good what else do you remember lots in the Old Testament Achan. Achan they found who Achan was by casting lots so they used it to find out the guilty party God would cause the lot to be on them really all three of those examples so far are that what else Jonah. Jonah we said Cameron they cast lots to decide the territory being distributed. Yes! When they divided up the land in the book of Joshua, they cast lots to decide which tribe would get which piece of land. And that was their way of letting God choose where the tribes went to. Saul was a proclaimed king. Saul was proclaimed king. That's exactly right. They cast lots to show which one God had chosen. What else? The temple service. Who would do what jobs in the temple was by lot. In 1 Chronicles 25, 8, they cast lots for their duties. And all of that was to show, let God decide. And, and so the emphasis is still on, when we come to the end of this chapter, God makes the decisions. We do stuff, but God's ultimately the one who can decide. And, uh, you know, in everything, God is the ultimate determiner. We plan, we do stuff, God decides how it turns out. Comments and questions on this chapter? All right, let's take a break for a few minutes, and then we'll work on chapter 17.